explicit. Yeah, yeah, I'd be interested to talk about that. I mean, first of all, I'd be really interested to know who actually watches television history. How many people actually sit down and watch a three or four part series? Okay. That's very pleasant. <laughs> okay. Um, I wasn't sure, because one of the things I'd love to talk about later as well is, is the way television is, is changing, um, uh, the challenge of the web and the web devouring television slowly. Um, and it'd be very interesting to kind of to hear your views. I know BBC Two, for instance, where uh, let's, I think a, a large majority of television history goes out, uh, has a very... Uh, my very much a kind of a middle-aged demographic. Um, so I think one of the challenges that we'd be really interested to talk, to talk about later is how do we engage the younger generation uh, with visual history, so sound and vision. Um, I'm just going to quickly look for uh, a... So, Apologise. So basically, yeah, just to, just to reiterate, I'm, I, I run a small independent production company called Clear Story. And um, I'm really sorry, I'm looking for the um, disc, I think. So sorry, Graham, do you know how I could... I, I can't see the disc that I just put in. Is it... Yes, sorry, I found it now. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, I run a, a small independent brush company called um, Clear Story. Uh, we have uh, we've been going three years, and um, we've produced about 20 hours of television so far. I would guess about 10 or 11 hours would you class as history or reversions of previous David Reynolds films that I made with a different company. Um, uh, and uh, I'm going to just show you something that we made uh, with David uh, last year that's going to be on later this year for the BBC World War I centenary. Um, it, this is a clip that is talking about um, the upheavals of nationalism after the Great War, um, particularly on the Czech-Polish border, um, but also sending up, if you like, the uh, history's, traditional history's obsession with dates. During the break, this was in the Austria. As revolution swept away the old empires in 1918, it was taken over by Poland. A year later, it belonged to a new state called the Czech Party. In So uh, there we are, that's sound and vision. Um, so uh, we, uh, so I would say, I would argue that I think, um, it'd be very interesting to talk about this, um, but that historical documentary on television is, is, is the thing that's been going through a kind of golden age recently. Um, I, I think there've been many more hours uh, of programs um, and that's been driven partly by technology, partly by uh, uh, new and faster editing uh, and better access to archive. Uh, and also I think there's a broader cultural appetite for, hist for history, um, which you can see through best-selling historical fiction and online genealogy. And I think there's a, it's a very interesting moment um, the question is how the medium evolves. Um, 
I think also what I would note uh, is very important is um, that uh, there is a plethora, there are a plethora of uh, academics now on our screens, people like David Reynolds, but also uh, Mary Beard, Lucy Worsley, Simon Sharma, obviously, David Starkey, Robert Bartlett, Tom Asbridge, Richard Miles, I mean, that's to name just but a few. Um, so it's an exciting moment in television for, uh, for a direct communication, I think, between academic research, academic uh, uh, thinkers, and hundreds of thousands of viewers at least. Um, who are, can be engaged and encouraged to go out and find out more and buy a book. Uh, uh, I know that the shows aren't always perfectly nuanced, um, uh, uh, but they think they can communicate often a kernel of a historical argument uh, or original research to a wider public. And I think that's, whenever we talk to commissioning editors uh, and talk about ourselves, that's, uh, that's our aim. Uh, as Phil said, it's, uh, it's a different, you're, you're going for a different purpose, a different goal, and that's to engage the public, to have impact. So the question is how to join in. As Phil said, uh, there are lots of opportunities for history graduates. I would say uh, well, certainly, I'm a history graduate. My co-director at my company is a history graduate. Uh, head of Dunant is a history graduate. I would say about half the CVs that come across our desks are history graduates. Television and history is, is linked, um, and we don't, they often don't get to do history programs, but you know, we, do, uh, we do get a lot of uh, people coming from history. Um, and then I suppose if you are an academic and you want to get your research, your thinking, your, your ideas across, the question is how to get um, commissioned. Um, being outside the BBC, it's a very, very different process. We, don't, we, we do obviously get uh, uh, some access to briefings with uh, commissioning editors, but our experience is, it is it, it, it's very opaque. You really are trying to double, second guess, you know, what the commissioning editors are thinking. You, you actually uh, monitor their, their Twitter feeds. What are they reading? Um, that's become uh, quite important. We, we follow them in the trade press. Any, any loose comment is seized upon, and we chuck, chuck in lots of uh, um, uh, proposals. Um, and because fundamentally what we're doing is fighting for a very limited pot of money. Um, and, uh, and we also, as part of that, obviously, the other thing we think about is two, three years ahead. As Phil said, you often, you often need to think very strategically about the anniversaries coming up. Anniversaries, particularly recently on BBC Two, seem to be a, a major deal. So that, that's been very important. Um, and, I mean, when you look at the TV schedules, it seems like uh, commissioning editors have a kind of insatiable appetite for Hitler, for Anne Boleyn, and the Pharaohs. But actually, in my experience, John's experience, our development producer's had uh, experience, they're desperate for something new. There's a sense in which, um, you know, when we go with a new document, a new piece of texture, just a, a letter or a, um, uh, an MI5 interrogation file, something like that would be good. Um, if we go with that, um, they are really excited. I mean, these are people who often, you know, Mark Dammers actually has become an academic, but these are often people who um, uh, really wanted to be our kind of academics monkey. You know, they, they would love to be at King's te teaching lectures. And so this, it's really wonderful when they get a sense of the texture of history or a new talent, a new presenter. We, we patronizing call it talent um, in telly. Um, a presenter who has a passion for his subject or her subject and can get that across on screen. That's very, very exciting um, to commissioning editors. So how do, we do, how do we go about that? We send in proposals, which are obviously bold propositions of, often, trying to join the dots of history in a different way, make people think again. Um, 
original research, as I said, is very important. Often the best television history uh, takes a detail and extrapolates out of it. I mean, that, that one wasn't the best TV history, but, but that idea of a piece of coal, the story of one piece of coal, indicative of a larger story, that can be done much, much better, obviously, with original documents uh, and research. Um, uh, and then the other uh, thing uh, is resonance. Um, so this is why anniversaries are so important, is looking for the stories in the past that speak to the present and, and you know, illuminate uh, our, our troubles in the present. Um, what we do is we send in proposals. We bombard the BBC and Channel 4 with proposals, um, uh, which are often a bit like book proposals, I imagine, book, book synopses, but you know, filled with pictures. Um, and then we also put in what we call horribly, I don't, I don't know where the word came from, sizzle reels, which are um, uh, kind of three-minute promos where uh, we, take an academic, we take an academic and, um, uh, and they expound on their subject with passion and, and verve. Um, and uh, that's to really excite the commissioning editor and, and get them to, to kind of imagine a little, a small part of the program. Um, so we often do that. And then we push, push for meetings, which can often take um, months to, um, or weeks anyway, to arrange. Um, these people are incredibly busy. I don't know why they're so short-staffed. Um, there's so few commissioning editors. Uh, it's a massive bottleneck. I would say that on average, it takes three to six months to, to get a commission. Um, and you get an awful lot of maybes on the way. Um, if you do get a commission, if we get a David Reynolds series or something like that, the next challenge is to uh, create a script, to structure a script. Um, and we, on average, find that it's about 6,500 words in telly, 6,500 words per hour. Um, so you've really got that. This is where the critical thinking uh, goes in the pre-production stage, um, not necessarily so much in the editing. You've really got to work out uh, what the key arguments are that you want to get across. Uh, what are the examples? Um, so um, there are ways, and then you've also got to actually reflect, I suppose, the, the different historical nuances and reflect different forms of research. There are two major ways that's done on television, I'm sure you've noticed. One is uh, you get a kind of Dan Snow or Max Hastings figure who wanders through giving a kind of opinion, uh, 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 and then you fill out with lots of academics like yourselves who, who give uh, a, you know, a, a bit of detail um, at crucial moments. Um, that's one method that seems to be uh, doing quite well. But um, I mean, I, I'd be interesting to talk about this. I have a lot of misgivings about that because I feel then the power is so much in the editing and it's all about performance uh, in interview. Um, I, I think there are problems with that. Also that in a way it's intellectual cover for um, uh, you know, proposition, um, which the academics who are being interviewed may not entirely agree with. Um, then as a contrast, uh, there are authored documentaries, and that's, I suppose, what you know, I, I feel more comfortable in. Um, uh, so I've done films with Neil Ferguson and David Reynolds, uh, in particular Richard Dawkins as well about Darwin. Um, and the trick of these, uh, as I said, I think is to draft a really good script. What we do is we get 10 to 12 key points we want to get across. Um, we, we don't we're quite limited in, in the way, you know, we, we say to ourselves, there are massive constraints. What can we actually say? Um, so we really try to decide what are the 10 uh, red lines, if you like, what are the things we have to get across? And those can be key arguments, um, key anecdotes that are entertaining or, or key locations, key documents. Um, and uh, we, we structure a, a, a script around that. It then becomes a kind of, I've got some, uh, let's see if this plays. Um, 
it then becomes a kind of uh, essay crisis for about 30 weeks. Uh, that's what it feels like. You, we basically ping our scripts back and forth by email uh, and get uh, this kind of thing happening. Um, and uh, so, so with track changes, so it becomes a kind of, uh, I think on average, I've, we counted about 30 scripts, um, roughly, from inception, from uh, the point of commission through to the final voiceover record, is usually about 30 versions of the script, constantly refining, constantly cutting down. It's usually, it's a question of getting it down to length, and what do we lose, and what are the compromises we have to make to do that. Um, uh, the other thing I would say, just as a, a last point on, on author um, uh, programs, is that uh, you know, the really critical thing is to understand that it is a different vehicle. It's a different language you're speaking. Uh, one of the joys of working with uh, David and Neil is that they completely get that, that this is not something that is designed for their academic peers who um, could easily pick holes in it. It is about, um, uh, it is about a generating debate, um, engaging a wider audience with the subject. Um, uh, having said that, we always interrogate constantly what we're doing. I mean, that's the big purpose, is to interrogate uh, through the scripting what exactly we're trying to say, um, trying to understand, uh, above all, get the balance right between big picture and detail. That's always the trick uh, that with television, with so few words being able to, to be put across in the time. What can you tell in pictures? What can you extract from locations and visual sequences that allows you to tell the picture? Um, uh, I just, I, I, I could show one or two clips if you like. Um, yeah, um, there's one, uh, so basically I was asked, I was, they, one of the issues that I think we really need to talk about is how do you have impact with integrity? And that's, so, so you, you have a BBC Two series or whatever and, you know, but, it, but what's tricky is with this very limited word count um, uh, and also with uh, very, often very robust opinions from above, from commissioning about how they want something, you know, how do you then still stay true to the historian's voice? I'd, I'll just show you um, one or possibly two um, uh, little examples of, of, thing, of challenges we've had. Um, we did a film uh, called Nixon in the Den, um, which uh, in 2010, and uh, in the middle of that process, we had a change of commissioning editor. And the new commissioning editor, who's a brilliant guy, um, uh, uh, but uh, he was very, very keen that I think he'd just watched Anthony Hopkins in Nixon, in Oliver Stone. He was very, very keen that um, we had a, a much more kind of psychological, uh, Freudian um, kind of examination of Nixon, where, you know, what, what, his, what his difficult roots were and how that affected him, his Oedipal relationship with his father, if you like. Um, so this became a kind of an interesting discussion um, uh, during the edit stage. It was quite a late stage, and we really had to kind of fix the film, get it right for the commissioning editor so that he was happy with it, but also get it right for us. Um, so what we did, our solution to this was kind of a creative sidestep, really. And what we did was we created a series of flashbacks in the film um, where David, David anyway had been recorded talking a bit about Nixon's character. And what we did was we used that as a jumping off point to flash back into a, into a past sequence where we tried to dig that up a bit, but just do it through straight biographical fact. So no kind of Freudian analysis. Um, um, so uh, let me just show you a clip of that. And um, I think you'll, you'll see very clearly that it's a kind of narrative device. Nixon oh, sorry. I'm an that Nixon had always compensated for his lack of personal skills by a formidable capacity for hard work. 
Hard work had been Nixon's way out of his impoverished small town background. From his modest local college in Whittier, Southern California, Top grades won him a scholarship at Duke University, one of the best law schools in the country. This should have been a huge boost to his self-confidence, but Nixon never let up. His grim determination earned him the nickname Gloomy Gus. One fellow student recalled, A very studious individual, almost fearful of I can see him in the law library, punched over a book, seldom even looking up. He never saw him. Even on Saturday nights, he was in the library. So yeah, so that, so you know, just a quote, a couple of you know basic facts, and yet we're able to kind of deliver something of what the commissioning editors after. I think uh, just filling out some of that sense of where Nixon comes from and, and this kind of workaholic, introvert president. Um, last one I'll, I'll show you um, is a uh, a film we made that that what you know uh, was up for a grist and um, about Stalin, and I, this was a, a real challenge to make. It was a 90-minute BBC Four film. Um, and it was about, it was called, 90, in the end it was called, it was a real uh, mad title, World War II, 1941, and the Man of Steel. And that kind of actually sums up the, the process of making it. It was just trying to, you know, we, we actually just wanted to call it Uncle Joe um, at one point, because we, you know, it, it was trying to say something about World War II, it was trying to um, really get to grips with, you know, the trauma of the uh, German invasion of, of, of the Soviet Union in 41, uh, and, uh, and then also bring in this whole problem of leadership, of Stalin's leadership. Um, and how do you do that? How do you do that well? I mean, it was, you know, you have to cut so much. We tried to obviously do justice to the sacrifices of, 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 of the soldiers, of the prisoners, of, you know, we, we, we really tried to tell the frontline story, the workers' story as well, the amazing industrial feats of Soviet Russia. Um, but, you know, we kept coming back and the BBC wanted us to keep going back to this enigma of Stalin in the middle of it. Now, you know, so how do you do that, honestly? Well, when, given that you know, this is massive subject that you could cover in so many different ways. Well, in the end, what you, and I think this is where I think author documentaries can be, uh, in, a, in a sense, have more integrity, be more honest. You come back to a personal view. You, you're using a historian to say, look, to signpost, say, I think this was what was going on. Um, so again, with this, we, we very carefully researched what was going on for Stalin during the period. Um, one of the things he, many sources said he did was read um, the biography uh, of uh, Kutuzov, the Tsarist uh, general uh, in the Napoleonic War, who, who, who helped defeat Napoleon. Uh, but lost Moscow. And, and one of the things we want to, that, that, that David does in this clip, uh, which you'll see, is to try and trace that longer history, that tale of the greater sacrifice, um, but also just to put it through the prism of Stalin's you know, horrendous ego. And I think you get a kind of, you, you certainly he flags his view, and also you get a sense of his anger about it, which I think you know, gave the film a kind of emotional, well, more of, a, more of an emotional heart that it might have. as an outlying railway siding, Stalin's train was ready. According to one of his aides, the Soviet leader paced up and down in his tattered greatcoat, weaving in and out of the steam, still pondering. Then he told his staff, no evacuation. We stay here until victory. The evacuation order was revoked. 
hundreds of looters were shot, and the capital was placed under martial law. No one can really judge what tipped Stalin's decision. Certainly he and Zhukov knew that fresh troops were being rushed west from Siberia. But I think that Stalin's ego and sense of history also played a part. The outsider, the cobbler's son from faraway Georgia, thought that he could outdo Kutuzov, one of the heroes of the Russian past. He would save Russia and save Moscow as well. Oops, okay. So there we are, okay. Thank you. Thank you, Russell. Um, it, it, it's notable, actually, watching this, um, seeing Stalin there and Richard Nixon, you know, the stuff about Wolf Hall and how history at the moment is obsessed by um, those of humble birth who rise to power and the problems thereof. Yeah, so that's, that's obviously a theme that's been mine at the moment. Um, you all know Lucy DeLapp, who's um, director of this report, 